Welcome or welcome back to Tea and Tangents with Tara. On this week's episode, Emily and I will be co-hosting the second of a three-part series of Making Science News Palatable. Last week, we covered asthma and thunderstorms, and in this three-part series, we'll be taking peer-reviewed journal articles and making them more understandable because sometimes science can seem hard and inaccessible. This week's topic, cyanobacteria. So cyanobacteria, if you haven't heard of cyanobacteria before, um, they're a blue-green algae that produce a variety of bioactive compounds. So cyanobacteria have been considered a potential tool for the energy crisis, food security, disease outbreaks, and even climate change. We'll be talking about some of their potential uses, but before we get to that, let's talk about the impacts on overpopulation from human health. Yep, so today we definitely have a couple of human health crises that we need to look at. So the first definitely stems from overpopulation. And when we look at countries who um, are overpopulated, we see that they don't have an adequate food supply to support each member of their population. They often experience having um, dirty water and as well as living in overcrowded areas. And overpopulation also contributes or is contributed to by reproductive rights and the access of uh, family planning services to various populations. Yep, and we often see that an overpopulation is correlated with um, limited um, education of young women and as well as, Tara said, access to um, birth control and women's health organizations as well. And also the legal age of marriage is a big player in overpopulation or even family planning. And here we see in the U.S. that um, I think the average is 2.5 children. And we often see that people are getting married later, which is usually why um, they have less children than they previously had in maybe the 1960s. Yeah, like I know my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, had 16 children. So my mom is the youngest of 16, and that is an incredible amount. So in a lot of countries like Guyana, um, it's typical to have a lot of children, usually eight, not 16. (laughs) So today we're going to be referencing our information from two academic journals, one from the journal Environments, which was titled Cyanobacteria, Review of Current Potentials and Applications by Zara Zara, And the second one is from Biotechnology Progress, and its title is Cyanobacteria as an Eco-Friendly Resource for Biofuel Production. So to start us off, cyanobacteria has very old origins, and because of this, um, they can survive in various ranges of environmental conditions, from deserts to hot springs, from fresh water to marine aquatic habitats, and other extreme weather conditions. And because of this uh, ability to adapt, that makes cyanobacteria a really good tool for various places in the world. So it's not, it doesn't have to be cultivated in one specific country or one specific climate. Cyanobacteria are considered primary photosynthesis organisms, which are living things that perform photosynthesis. And this means that they produce oxygen. And we're going to be talking about how cyanobacteria are a source for biofuel and biodiesel. So because they're producing oxygen instead of carbon dioxide during production, 
it's actually a cleaner way of producing fuel. So let's start by talking about like the most significant factors that influence their growth. So the most significant factors which influence their culture are the light intensity, temperature, carbon dioxide concentration, pH, and the contents of the culture medium. So that's like whether you put nitrogen in, whether you put carbon dioxide in, or whatever you're putting in to help the culture grow. And when you put in certain foods, which means you're basically feeding the algae something, um, it influences the product, which makes sense because different inputs will have different outputs. So let's start with um, something that I feel has been really trendy when we're discussing algae and we're discussing cyanobacteria, which is using algae for biofuel. So typically, um, I believe gas companies like ExxonMobil um, and etc. have um, attempted to create an image of them going uh, more green and making more eco-friendly decisions by investing in research relating to using algae for fuel. It's interesting that you bring that up actually because a fuel company, BP, actually coined the term carbon footprint. So this concept, if you haven't heard of it, it talks about the influence that each individual has on the carbon output. So how much carbon we're producing that goes into the atmosphere and kind of sticks around. This is important because carbon dioxide is one of the greenhouse gases. So basically that means that carbon dioxide can get stuck, can, can trap heat in the atmosphere and cause the atmosphere to heat up or can cause climates to change. And this is what induces climate change. So when we talk about a carbon footprint, um, it talks about the individual impact of carbon. It doesn't really place the blame for carbon production on companies and corporations, which typically have a much greater carbon output than one household or one individual. So it is interesting to think about carbon from that perspective because that's been pushed, as you said, by fuel companies who want to go more green. They want to show you ways that you can reduce your carbon footprint but still buy our fuel. Um, so and this is important to express how certain companies who are um, maybe perceived as negative in um, the public due to their um, not environmentally friendly practices like British Petroleum and being responsible for the 2010 Deepwater Horizon disaster, how they use, um, you know, media and attempts at creating a greener image to make themselves look better. Yeah, this is called greenwashing. So a lot of companies will try to appeal to people who want to be sustainable and who want to do better and leave a quote-unquote uh, lesser carbon footprint. They want to appeal to these people so they can be customers and then contribute to their own little profit. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are contributing to like a greater sustainable way of living that's good for the environment. Now moving on, cyanobacteria also proves to be beneficial in terms of um, being used in the beauty industry or the personal care product industry because it is used for vitamins, pigments, and enzymes. And now this is super important because um, for those of you who aren't aware, some personal care products contain um, various ranges of potentially hazardous chemicals. Mm -hmm. We know some as endocrine disrupting chemicals, um, phthalates, parabens, yeah. um, so, triclosan. 
So it's important to note that um, current research does suggest that cyanobacteria can maybe be used to replace these um, chemicals that are used. So cyanobacteria can potentially be used as a substitute for these super um, hazardous um, products that are in um, these personal care products. And it would be interesting to see research on like how that can impact people and to understand if cyanobacteria is a safe and healthy alternative. Um, there's also the part which you brought up about nutrition and food supplements with uh, products of cyanobacteria. What do you think about that? How can that be a tool for potentially helping populations that don't have access to vitamin supplements? Sure. So when I think about developing countries, um, I think about how there are often high numbers of children who are vitamin A deficient and how this often leads to them um, losing their vision. So globally, 30% of children under the age of five are vitamin A deficient. Um, and around 250,000 and 500,000 go blind. So cyanobacteria offers um, a solution or even just a little bit more of a chance for this to go down because this is really a global health crisis as well. And that's a significant amount of children. 30% of children under five being vitamin A deficient should definitely be a red flag that something needs to happen to supplement their deficiency. Because we have heard of genetically modifying food to have these vitamins, and I think that's a great way. Some people have discrepancies in whether GMOs are safe, um, but there needs to be some sort of upcoming solution about how to have more nutritious foods for populations that don't have that variety in food. Mm -hmm. And in addition to this, um, current research also suggests that um, cyanobacteria can also aid in vitamin B12 and iron deficiencies as well. And that's so interesting. I'm iron deficient. So um, this is also interesting for populations that are vegetarian or pescatarian because those populations are typically at risk for iron deficiency. So it's not just for developing countries or specific populations in developed countries. Every person, or if you look at it, every patient, has different needs for their diet based on their cultural needs or their social environment and the food available to them. So this is just a great way to supplement their diet. And there are actually numerous dietary supplements that have cyanobacterial species already that are on the market. So that should be interesting for American consumer markets to see if it becomes something of the future, something upcoming. And these um, cyanobacteria can also act as a biofertilizer. So this means that it can act as a natural alternative to fertilizers. Now, I think it's common to see um, often fertilizer companies um, being on the news for potentially having harmful chemicals in their products. So with fertilizers, um, if you get like a treatment on your lawn, you shouldn't allow your pet on it. So if you think you shouldn't allow your pet on it, it's probably not good for you to be breathing that in, right? Mm -hmm. So if we use cyanobacteria as um, an alternative to this, it could really improve um, not only our health, public health, but also um, our surrounding environment ecosystem. So there should, would be less of a chance of the water, soil, and air pollution that we find um, using fertilizers. Yeah, and Emily and I both have dogs. So our dogs are always like running around the yard or you when you take them on walks, they're exposed to the different things people put on their lawns. 
So making sure our environment is helpful and not harmful to our pets can also be an incentive to look for clean fertilizers. Another concern with fertilizers is runoff. So uh, if you haven't heard of the Cervetti, runoff is basically when sediment and chemicals and other specimens enter waterways, whether it be uh, oceans, lakes, rivers, by being carried by rainwater. So when these things enter waterways, they enter the ecosystem of the waterway, and that can influence any living thing that's in that river or lake or ocean. So when fertilizer is a part of runoff, that means fertilizer can enter our waterways. And this is also concerning because waterways is how we get drinking water, how we get water to bathe with or to use for daily living activities like cooking. So we want to be mindful of what we put into our environment because just like karma, what you what comes around goes around and whatever you put into your environment will come back at you. So an interesting thing now that we're on water is about wastewater. Cyanobacteria has the opportunity has the ability to convert wastewater into lipids that can be used for biodiesel. And this is so cool because the idea that we can be almost recycling our wastewater into biodiesel um, is much more sustainable and kind of safer for the environment than burning off uh, non-biodiesel to use for cars and transportation. Because we are using bio, not biofuel, we're using non-biofuels on a daily basis, but it would be nice if we could supplement that. And lastly, another benefit that cyanobacteria offers is that it can potentially improve polluted environments. So cyanobacteria have this ability to adapt and um, to any environment that they are in, which can really help with maybe improving severely polluted environments, and that can include areas that have been greatly impacted by wildfires, mm -hmm. as well as um, areas where drought and desertification are um, occurring, which is causing food shortages in certain countries. Yeah, and because cyanobacteria have this capacity to adapt to various environments, we can use cyanobacteria in these various environments, whether it be somewhere where there's drought and desertification and not much water supply, or somewhere where there is a lot of water supply, but we want to use wastewater to create biodiesel. Those are all uses of cyanobacteria that I think should be brought to the, the government's knowledge because we can use that to reduce our carbon production as a society. Yeah, and this would greatly be beneficial, especially since over 75% of Earth's land area is degraded, and potentially by 2050, 90% could become degraded as well. So there are limitations that I want to discuss about um, using cyanobacteria. So cyanobacteria are algae, so there are, there is the potential for toxic algal blooms. Yep, and since we live on Long Island, um, I'm sure that many are familiar with um, Long Island's freshwater and the occurrence of these algal blooms. And like with pet owners and fertilizer, pet owners have to also worry about their animals going into freshwater lakes or rivers and becoming exposed because this is actually toxic to um, dogs as well. Yeah, so algal blooms typically occur when there's an excess of nutrients in the waterway with the algae, and this supports the algae's growth to a point that it's overgrowing. 
right? So the algae is growing on the surface. It blocks sunlight from coming in because the algae are photosynthetic organisms. They want the sunlight. They want to take it in, make their products. But everything under the algae is not getting sunlight. So all the plants on the floor of the water body are not getting the proper sunlight to go through photosynthesis. And this creates problems with the ecosystem because it creates an unbalance between which photosynthetic organisms are getting sunlight, which are able to produce the products they need to produce, and therefore which animals, i.e. fish, are able to eat those organisms. So can the fish eat the algae? Is there too much algae for the fish to eat? Um, can other organisms on the floor that fish usually eat grow? And another potential limitation lies in the economic impact. So it's really important when we consider anything that has the potential to be a new technology that can help in this environmental crisis. Because like with the um, issue with electric cars currently is that, yes, it's better for the environment, but not only do you have to use lithium batteries to make that aren't good for the environment, but also there aren't 100% electric always. Sometimes they do need gas. Um, so now we are forced to look at this issue with cyanobacteria. Do we have the finances to start um, this research for all these different potential benefits? And do countries have the, um, the ability to accommodate for them in research facilities? Because in a lot of countries, there will be people who want to lobby for cyanobacteria not to be used and these lobbyists are in support of fuel companies. Fuel companies are not going to want some great new alternative to their fuel to be put on the market because that influences their, their profit. And it really does come down to money sometimes, unfortunately, because every company and corporation has monetary interests, whether it be like a research group that in some random country that wants to make profit off of the product they're making and producing, or whether it be someone selling fuel or cars or even houses, there's always some sort of monetary incentive, unfortunately, that kind of inhibits us from really moving in a sustainable direction. Exactly. And how do we get people to want to, you know, take vitamin supplements made from algae? How do we get people to want to use um, eco-friendly fertilizers. It's often really difficult to ask people to change their behavior that they've been doing for the last, you know, couple of decades. So it really relies on hopefully our younger generation to really make these changes and work towards a goal to really protect our environment. I completely agree. Again, the change is in the hands of the youth. So we really hope that everyone listening enjoyed the podcast for today and start some conversation among your peers and your classmates and even your parents and your coworkers. It's good to talk about this stuff because peer-reviewed articles and information should not be inaccessible to the general public. Science is not as hard as it's made to be sometimes. Sometimes science is presented in a way that is only understandable if you have a certain background. But we hope with this podcast, Total PH, that we can cover all environmental health topics to both of our understandings. Hopefully we'll see you next week.